0: So poor mom was sitting there with her arms like glued to her lap. And I was like, oh, she sounds really stiff. Oh, it's because she's not moving her hands.
1: Also, mom loves to fidget. My kids talk a lot about taking up a lot of space in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always interpret that as a conceptual thing. But when I look at mom, she physically Physically takes up tons of space (laughs) while talking. (laughs) i was like, whoa. (laughs)
0: I mean, perhaps this is a genetic trait. (laughs) I am so excited to introduce y'all to another member of my kooky family, my sweet, smart, tiny little baby brother Zeb, who is like six feet tall and in his 30s, but doesn't matter. He will always be our baby. Deb is also one of the people who inspired me to start the show, like my mom. And also like my mom, he is a professional Jewish educator. And yet, like me, also a pretty secular American reform Jew. This is actually one of the first episodes I recorded. And we dug really deep into what our upbringing meant and what this Jewish identity is. Zepp's perspective is especially interesting because not only is he incredibly well-educated and an educator in whatever the heck it means to be Jewish in the modern world, but he moved to Israel as an adult and lived there for almost 10 years, which is a completely different way of living out one's Jewishness than the American version we grew up with. Bear with us, we are the children of professors, so this one gets a little heady, but you are going to learn a ton. This episode is packed with terminology, so definitely check out the glossary. And if you don't see a word you hear, check the notes from a former episode. We may have talked about it before. Also, just a little heads up, there is a word in the latter part of the episode that is used as a slur for Jews. But it's in the context of Zeb explaining the origin of it to me. Okay, here we go. So, in my head, these are two separate things, but maybe they're not. Right. So on the one hand, when people ask me if I'm Jewish, I always say I was raised Jewish, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. And I know you and I have talked about that before, but on the other hand, it's like, oh no, I'm not really Jewish, but I'm just, you know, casually, you know, quoting scripture and saying, oh, you don't know who Boaz is? Well, let me explain to you the concept of the righteous Gentile. So like, why is that a thing that we, I don't know that this, obviously I can't I am not the spokesperson for Jews. (laughs) I'm not the spokesperson for American Jews, but in the reform tradition in which we were raised, at least growing up, I would say that's pretty common. Like I think most Jewish kids that we grew up with could tell you the Bible stories in pretty good detail, or at least the overarching messages and bullet points. Right. And I don't know I mean, maybe I've never really talked about the Bible with my Christian friends. Although that's not true because...
1: Some of them could probably quote it better than you (laughs) do.
0: Yes, for sure. Many of them. But the point is, I think they would all call themselves religious and Christian if they could do that. If you
1: leave the faith of being Christian, you're not culturally Christian. You're just not. You're atheist. Interesting. If you stop believing in Judaism, you're still a Jew.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Although, dare we suggest that the neutral, at least in this country, is culturally
1: Christian. Right. I would also (laughs) agree with that. I think people talk about America as a secularized country or a secularizing country, but it's actually secularized Christianity.
0: I agree. And also, this is one of the things that I've observed, you know, living here. I think the cultural default is Christianity. Right. In this country, at least. But yeah, I do think it's interesting. Like, I don't consider myself religious. And yet, From the time I was in first grade, I was in a classroom studying, I guess you could say at least the trappings, but the major tenets of this religion from the language to the holidays to the lifestyles. I mean, the curriculum that we learned was the quote unquote lifestyle curriculum. So it was like every single year we learned about different parts of, quote, being Jewish. How do you get married? How do you have kids? How do you have a bar mitzvah? Where does that all go?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think the idea of culturally Jewish is, if I'm not mistaken, a term that became more popular in the 90s and early 2000s. And a lot of people started to identify as culturally Jewish, with the clear implication being as opposed to religiously Jewish. And I think that this term came about largely because it answered a need that a lot of people felt in defining their identity. And how am I Jewish? In what way am I Jewish? Describing what you said, like I also, obviously, as you know, spent many a lot of time... Growing up, being sent to learn all the, like you said, the cultural trappings of being Jewish, the holidays, the language, I don't know, stories, all of those things happened in a synagogue, in a place of worship. That's true. In a religious school, quote unquote, or at least that's what it was called. And that's what it was called when our mom, who... Well, I'm not sure when she stopped being atheist, but the self agnostic well, in
0: her mind, was the director. In her mind, she never was atheist in her mind, at least in her version right. of the story as she now. tells it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's also very consistent. You know, people tend to get more religious as they get older. Um, but I mean, I, I always thought of us as a pretty agnostic family. Yeah. And definitely. even when she became the education director at Temple Emmanuel, in my mind, it was an educational role, not a religious role. Yeah. But the way that she tells it now, it's not that way. But that's not how we lived it at the time. You know, when I was, even then, I remember her discourse about it was very much more about the anthropological, quote unquote, truth slash history of Judaism, the way that people perform, not perform it. I don't mean perform as in performative. I mean the way in which it has a role in our actions, in our lives. I always felt like she explained that to us from an anthropological perspective yeah. rather than a religious one, but maybe I'm wrong.
1: Uh, no, I think you're right. I mean, I also think that, uh, you know, perhaps that happened some point along the way where mom spent years teaching Judaism and slowly became also more receptive to the religious tenets of Judaism. Mm. And it became her whole community as well. But those were the th- first things that brought her into it, I think. And also what's true is even while she was the education director... I don't think she was ever theologically dogmatic. I don't think she ever went out of her way. Like, there was no, I don't know, tests or gatekeeping of students to say, were they religious and were they adopting the religious practices and beliefs? No. Anyone was allowed to be in the Mm -hmm. religious school, and anyone who was there was taught the holistic culture of Judaism. And what was important is that they show up at the holidays and that they participate and that they do the cute things like the Purim play. (laughs) That was much more important than whether someone believed and attested to, I don't know, the singularity of God.
0: That is so funny that you recall that because I absolutely remember that, you know, when I was in high school and teaching, you know, I was the all purpose office aid slash substitute teacher slash, you know, everything. You know, my, my high school job was at temple. The rabbi never asked me if I was coming to to Friday services, but sure as hell, he was like, but you're going to be in the play, right?
1: Exactly. (laughs) You know, these moments that bring the community together and also show the young generation of uh, adopting the cultural practices are actually more important than... I mean, the bar mitzvah is still a very important religious ceremony that brings the community together as well. But other than that, most of the things throughout the year are cultural practices, the feast around Passover, the dressing up at Purim. Well, and that's
0: interesting too, because now that you... Especially Passover, one of our... my. With the exception of the incredibly dour and serious holiday of Yom Kippur, Mm -hmm. which is bizarrely my favorite holiday. But anyway, except for that, is it? Fun
1: story about that.
0: Yeah, fun story about
1: the time time (laughs) of
0: atonement. Okay. (laughs) Sounds hilarious. (laughs) But but like, except for that, you know, because it's really like a very deep meditation is the way that I think about it. And a group meditation with an entire community, which is deeply meaningful and restorative. But except for that, of course, everybody's favorite holiday is Passover, which definitively yeah. is does not take place in a religious setting. It is definitively mm-hmm. to be in the home, to be led by a uh, member exactly. of the family. It, you know, I, I suppose, of course, in conservative or orthodox families, like most of the older men would be rabbis. But it's not a rabbi-led religious observance of a ceremony. It's literally a seder. It's a, an order of a meal that you just share with a bunch of people, you tell the story of yourselves, and you eat a bunch of food and drink as much wine as you can, hopefully as long, you know, until you fall asleep. Yeah. So that's interesting. Which
1: is lots of our holidays, which is nice.
0: Yeah, that is nice, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Um, Uh, Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that this term culturally Jewish helps people like you and me to give definition to how it is they were raised. Like you said, I was raised Jewish. Mm -hmm. What does that mean, though? If it wasn't actually any, there was... There was not a direct belief that was put down our throats, necessarily. Mm. I think people who come from very religious families, there are very specific tenets that they have to take, including belief in God, obviously, first Mm. and foremost. But then all of the rest of the ways we read the stories of the Torah, the stories of our people, are meant to be that. Stories. Mm. Mythology that explain to us something about ourselves. The story of Passover, like you say, talks about we were slaves in Egypt and now we are free. And there are many different directions. You could take that lesson. You Mm -hmm. could take that lesson to say, God promised us this land and Mm -hmm. we need to live there. You could take it to say, we were oppressed and now we know what it means to be oppressed and have a responsibility to be a light unto the nations, to fight oppression everywhere everywhere it exists. Yes. And Mm -hmm. then no one's free until everyone's free which is obviously the message that the American Jewish community more often takes from the Passover story. Mm -hmm. The Freedom Seder is this example, right? That American... What's a Freedom Seder? Oh, you've got to check it out. A few American Jewish rabbis uh, made made a Seder for the Reform and perhaps culturally Jewish people that focuses on freedom and oppression today. It was something that came out in the 60s.
0: Whoa, I didn't even know about that.
1: Abram Heschel and some other rabbis participated in this. You should look it up. And it was very much also tied to the civil rights movement at the time.
0: That makes though, a lot of sense, yes. yes. Because, of course, right? Where any people are oppressed anywhere, people are oppressed everywhere. That's right. Martin Luther King's message as well. Yeah. So,
1: There's lovely photos of Rabbi Heschel marching arm in arm with Martin Luther King.
0: Oh, I am a bad non-Jew, sort of Jew, no, cultural Jew for true. not knowing who <laughs> Rabbi Heschel
1: is. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, he's, uh, anyway. But
0: I still get to be a good Jew because it's not required. <laughs>
1: sure. Okay. So, but I think that, you know, religious families also have to take the belief that every word written in the Torah was written down by Moses, given to Moses by God at Mount Sinai. And that is revelation. That's the story of Passover. Uh-huh. If you're actually very religious, yes? Yeah. And it's God led us out of bondage. And it's God led us out of bondage to give us these commandments, which yeah. is the end of the story. Yeah, we get right. the 10 commandments and the, and you know, if you're Orthodox, every single word of the Torah. Including the bit where Moses dies and isn't allowed into Israel, After he writes it down there did, at Sinai, which is ridiculous all, and to then believe. I died. Yeah. Forty years from now, <laughs> yeah, and and we weren't given any of that, right? We were given the stories, and we were given the cultural practices, we were given the holidays, we were given the food, we were given the guilt, and then <laughs> and the then uh, yeah, and then sent out into the world to be like, what what does that actually mean that you're Jewish? And so. Yeah. I think the term culturally Jewish came about, especially for our generation, or maybe even people slightly before I think it's our generation. Much older than us, but yeah. I think it really, I mean, again, I could be mistaken, but I think it really did come to prominence around the 80s, 90s, not so early in American Jews. I would
0: say 80s, 90s, maybe. Certainly not 90s, 2000s, because, you so know.
1: Then there were also a lot of attempts to define what culturally Jewish actually means.
0: Yeah. I mean, my recollection is, you know, the, at least the idea of culturally Jewish is rooted in the assimilationism that was happening mm-hmm. for Western European Jews in really in the interwar period, mm-hmm. but especially obviously before world war II, because, you know, this is the time, and, you know, the, the, the historical learning of it that I got from, you know, Sunday school and Judaic studies and whatever is that, you know, these were discussions that were already happening around the time of Theodore Herzl around the time of Zionism was, you know, What does it mean to be Jewish in the diaspora? And especially in countries like France and Germany, the importance of assimilating, A, to protect yourself existentially, but also economically, right? I mean, in order to be able to allow to participate fully in the economics of these societies, which I think I see echoed as I'm saying this in American Judaism today, it's it's almost like you have to wipe off the external presentations of Jewishness. Absolutely. And then you are allowed in the door. But then, of course, when things take a bad turn, economically, especially, initially, usually, economically, but in a culture, when the culture begins to become afraid, dare we say paranoid, uh, it begins to close in on itself. And one of the first populations to be expelled is is the Jews that are resident.
1: Absolutely. The Jews are the, the you know, tamid. Permanent, the permanent other in the society that refuses to assimilate up until modernity. That's very true.
0: Yeah. And so I think that when we, you know, at least for me in my formal education on this, both in Sunday school and in finishing my Judaic studies degree, maybe what we call culturally Jewish now Mm -hmm. is just what was being talked about in Germany, you know, in the 1920s and 30s by the philosophers and writers of that time about how, you know, I'm a German first and I'm a Jew, mm-hmm. which did not work out.
1: Yeah, the tagline or the way people explained the what the reform movement brought to Judaism was, you could be a German in the street and a Jew in the home. This was a great- <laughs> German
0: in the street and a Jew in the sheets? Okay, sorry. <laughs> I guess so. not, not cute, but yes, kind of cute.
1: And people really love that. I think you're right also, if you want to take a historical perspective, for years and years and years and years, around 2000 they say, <laughs> Jewish communities existed in exile throughout a diaspora around the world without assimilating, which is strange. There are very few historical examples of this, of a people being spread around the world and basically retaining some amount of their identity or most of their identity and not integrating into the societies around. Mm-hmm. And this is what the, how the Jews existed throughout the entire Roman period, throughout mm-hmm. the entire Islamic period, mm-hmm. throughout the entire medieval period, until something really changed in modernity. I agree that modernity is the point when this model of basically closing yourself off into either shtetls or ghettos mm-hmm. worked for a long, long time, and then modernity changed things. The emancipation, as people talk about specifically around Jews, also is like a lot of the humanistic ideals that came around towards the turn of the last century also led to more open societies and led to a change in how nation-states exist, or in the invention of nation-states, really, where suddenly what was less important, like if, if once upon a time identity was land, family, religion, blood, class, all of those things wrapped in together Mm -hmm. and all of those things supported each other and all of those things justified one another Mm -hmm. and weren't so changeable, suddenly the ideas of humanism and of the birth of nation states led to the idea that you could be a part of, you could be a citizen, you Mm -hmm. couldn't just be a servant of a lord. You could be a citizen and the power and the strength of a nation is dependent on how many people buy into its symbols, into its national. Into concepts, this
0: imagined community, if you will. Uh, yes.
1: And into the and into the idea of participating in that nation, whether it was a democracy or not. Yeah? Right. But these ideals also led to the emancipation of Jews in a lot of places. In a lot of places, newer nationalistic leaders offered the Jews a chance to participate, and many took it. Mm -hmm. Many saw this as their opportunity to gain equality, social status, social movement, all these things. And many, many Jews started leaving the shtetl, started leaving the ghetto, started going to university, started working in modern trades. And this is what people call the the emancipation or the or the uh, the Haskalah, which is the Jewish version of the Enlightenment, yeah. which happened you know a couple hundred years later. Once we were invited,
0: <laughs> once we were actually allowed.
1: <laughs> yeah, and me- I- and all of these Jews also left their culture behind for a large extent. And then the reform movement started, it, and the conservative movement started, it, and it started in Germany yeah. first, and then spread through lots of Europe. Right. It was by far the most popular movement in Germany at a certain point by by the early 1900s.
0: That's what I was going to say. So the period that we're talking about here really is this idea um, of I can be a citizen who happens to be a Jew, regardless of where I live. Um, That really started around the time of Zionism becoming sort of a philosophical approach, which is interesting, too, right? Because I think there's also this misconception like Zionism was not a religious movement.
1: Very much not. I think, if anything, that modernity led to a similar crisis for all of the Jews, right? Which... So non-Jews pointed to the Jewish question. How can these people yeah. have their own identity and also live within these host countries? How yeah. do you, why don't these people Which assimilate? is also
0: when you think about that too, the bizarreness that literally worldwide from Portugal yes. to Morocco, to Germany, to France, to the United mm-hmm. States, there are, it's not just.
1: Even got a, Chinese Jews.
0: Well, there you go. Okay. So like even there in all of these different communities, there are the same markers. So it's not like, you know, American, you know, French Canadians are a certain kind of way and the French are this kind of way. And the only thing that maybe really unites them culturally, I guess you could say would be language, but even Mm -hmm. that is very different. Even though Jews all over the world have spoken different languages. And again, like Hebrew was not a spoken language, but Yiddish was, Mm -hmm. and only in Ashkenaz communities, but still Ladino in the Sephardic communities, But still, if I were a Jew from Spain and I moved to France or China, I would know how to participate in things like a Shabbat dinner.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
0: That is bizarre when you think about that. Yeah. These communities were also cut off from each other, which is interesting.
1: And you can kind of see how, you know, not to justify anti-Semitic tropes, but you can see how a host nation who's also in the process of nation building, Mm. like... I don't know. Say a young France looks at this community of Jews and thinks like, "Okay, they're clearly part of some sort of international cabal,
0: if you will, to which
1: they might be more loyal than to our state." Which is, you know, mm-hmm. that is the currency of nation states: is how many loyal citizens do you have, and can you produce?
0: That is an excellent point.
1: Uh, and yeah, so so wh-
0: wh- how can you reason through that unless you call it some sort of shadow state that exists beyond right. what you can define? Yeah. And here we are. <laughs>
1: and so that in general and also suddenly suddenly there was this ability to have your identity be more mobile. So I think as much as there were outside factors and the reactions of gentile society to Jews what modernity and the emancipation really brought was an ability to move and integrate and to gain, you know, social status and be like everyone else, which was very very tempting to a lot of people as also the world was urbanizing and technology was changing how life looked. People people wanted to participate. and Now they could. Now it wasn't just that if you were a Jew, you were always a Jew. And that was an ethnic separation. It was mm-hmm. if you want to be a part of the nation, you can. Mm. And, so, and that's an
0: interesting thing too, right? Like you can't just opt out by saying so. Like I can't just say... I'm not American anymore by saying so. Like I have to go to another country. Mm -hmm. I have to give up my citizenship formally. I have to apply for another passport. They also have to say yes, right? They have to accept me. So like I can call myself, you know, I no longer identify as an American. I can say that, but quote unquote logistically, that's not necessarily true according to anyone else. Whereas in Judaism, even in the eyes of the community, Mm -hmm. I can say, I was telling you about my friend, Nancy, who... Converted. She did officially convert, but she began identifying as a Jew long before that. She began to educate herself. Hmm. She began to raise her children differently. She began to look at her role in her friendships and her relationships differently. She began to identify as Jewish long before she ever, you know, checked all the boxes.
1: And she... And
0: she was accepted.
1: Presumably, didn't have to give up on being American in order to do that, right?
0: Correct. I think probably her Christian family would say she had to give oh, up on being yeah. Christian. That sounds right. <laughs> but again, that's a religious dogma, right? That's not the Jew. Yes. Even the Jewish community didn't say to her, "Well, you're not really Jewish yeah. if you if you do these things, if you think this way, if you love this way, if you live this way, you're Jewish. You're part. Of, you're one of us."
1: So if anything, I think the model of Jewish identity that had worked for a long, long time in all these nations across the world suddenly did not necessarily have a satisfactory answer to the young generation anymore in modernity. And that crisis met the whole Jewish community. And I think, in my opinion, and you know, other people have said similar things, there were only three responses that really came out to the crisis of modernity amongst the Jews. One of them was Zionism. Mm. Was saying, okay, now identity is wrapped up in nation belonging states. to a nation and in nationhood in peoplehood once upon a time that's how the Jews were we used to live in sovereignty in our own mm-hmm. land with a leader with a king with a mm-hmm. nation state with judges and all these things mm-hmm. and that's when Judaism was a living civilization as well for the last2,000 years we've had the Torah and tradition and that's it and mm-hmm. kept ourselves separate and that's enough and they're saying okay to be part of the community of the nations of the world we also need our own national movement and that's Mm -hmm. what zionism is the national liberation movement of the jewish people that's one response Mm -hmm. another response is orthodoxy Mm. which if anything didn't exist as it did orthodox jews will tell you we preserve judaism as it has been for the last two thousand years exactly as it's written in the torah Mm. that's an extremely fundamentalist view to preserve it as it is written in the torah that is not how people practiced in the 1600s well, the rabbis't how
0: people practiced in the time of the rabbis either. Right, it's not how exactly. they practiced under the Romans. It couldn't have
1: been. Exactly. So Orthodoxy was a response to modernity in a total rejection of modernity. Mm-hmm. if anything, it was saying, okay, well, all these forces in the world around us that are leading people to assimilate and leave the faith are too much what we and actually also need: They'll to,
0: come and go. Mm-hmm. This yes. is constant.
1: We need to double down to something even more fundamentalist.: and that, that is another response to modernity, in my opinion. And the third response is assimilation, which was by far the most popular one.
0: Well, and and I think you, one could arguably say the safest when uh, from an existential perspective.
1: Until, yeah, until it wasn't.
0: Until it wasn't. <laughs> until <laughs> yeah, it yeah, didn't work. <laughs> did not actually work out in the end. <clears throat> yes, but it certainly
1: offered the most promise in a lot of ways. Yeah, and, that's probably
0: a better way to say it. And,
1: um, you know, I would, you know, although I was raised a Reformed Jew, and I love Reformed Judaism, I think it's very, very important, I would place it within that trend of assimilation. I think that assimilation began, and most people started leaving, and then the Reform movement came and said, okay, well, how do we take the things that have been part of our identity and our ethnic identity, our cultural identity this whole time, and make them in a way that matches the modern world around us that we're attempting to integrate into? Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what they did. And there's a reason that if you walk into any Reform synagogue, it looks like a church. There's oh my a God. choir, and there are pews, and you pray facing forward and facing east. I mean, I guess we did that before anyway, but not in the same, like... I didn't even think about that. Yeah, and it usually has similar architecture, depending where yeah. in the world you are. It's meant to emulate and to look like the society around, but to take... Just be a version of it. A, yeah. This is the Jewish version of the same. You pray in the local language. We prayed in English growing right. up, right?
0: Well, we prayed in Hebrew too, but yeah. yeah.
1: in Hebrew as well. We
0: learned the prayers. But still so depending
1: on the church year, and you'll play, pray in English and in Latin.
0: That's right. That's true. That's so interesting. I didn't even think about that. And you know, when I was in Savannah, that was the third oldest Reformed Jewish community mm-hmm. in the country. Yeah. And that synagogue is gorgeous, but it's a cathedral. I'm sure. I don't know if you did. I take you there when you came to visit. Maybe you didn't. Maybe I we didn't.
1: Remember that we did go to this.
0: First place. of all, it's gorgeous. So, like, make no mistake, it is absolutely gorgeous. But you you walk in at the rear. You there's stained glass on the sides. Mm-hmm. There are pews the facing glass, the right. altar. And from the outside, it looks like a cathedral. And I never even thought about it. Damn, Zeb.
1: Yeah. And so this model really worked, and it worked nowhere did it work more than in Germany, to be honest. But also, so then you had this first thing where people really did that. They really did have their Jewish identity still and participate, I wouldn't say fully, but 90% yeah. in the society around them. That was basically the deal of Reformed your Jews. We'll be 90% less different if you hate us 90% less. <laughs> and it like
0: worked. 10% though, man, that one's a real right. bitch.
1: And by the time you got to World War One. You had things that never would have existed before. For example, Jews participating in the military. There's yeah. Jews on the German front. There are Jews on the French front yeah. fighting in both armies against one another. And, and that then we have, have the Dreyfus
0: Affair in France, yes. which, of course, exposed that when that 10% is allowed to simply run rampant, right. it's still existentially dangerous. That
1: was actually before. He was one of the first Jewish officers. Yeah. It was before World War One even. Yeah. So, then, yeah, go ahead. there's the backlash to all of that. And we all know how that went in Europe. And it's, it's this this deal of we'll be less different and you'll hate us less. Didn't exactly wipe out anti-Semitism entirely. Right. If anything, there was also a counter trend later.
0: Well, but, and also, I think that that whole thing, you know, it's like, hey, you can't win for losing, as mom would say, yeah. that whole thing of, oh, they're trying to assimilate to trick us. And so as soon as you have any, again, any of these fissures in society where people start to feel very insecure um, Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, culturally insecure, financially insecure, politically insecure. Then you look, you know, you look to root out those causes. And of course we don't want to look inward because, you know, that's deeply uncomfortable. We're just humans and looking inward for the reasons of our insecurity might suggest that we have to take responsibility for things like our declining political perspectives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, We might have to look at our own responsibilities from a social perspective as to why, you know, why is there so much violence in our society? Well, I think we have to look inward to ask, to answer those questions. But wouldn't it just be easier if there was a secret, you know, conspiracy of people who look like us and walk around talking like us, but really they're a part of this shadow state that goes from nation to nation to nation. And they somehow all share some hive mind that they know something we don't
1: know. That's interesting. If anything, yeah, they tried to be less different and that gave more ammunition to anti-Semitism in some ways of like, oh, yeah, you can try and look like us, but we know you're not really.
0: Exactly. And it's again, it's that so, same. It's all that conspiratorial thinking, right, where the right. lack of evidence is always evidence. Yeah. So, you know, Jews just being like, hey, I'm really just trying to like be an important part of the society. a hey, So maybe so you can't kill me. Sure. OK. Mm-hmm. So like, I hey, you need your doctors, right? OK, fine. Great. But also it's more just like I just live here, man.
1: Right. Yeah. And Jews participated in the, every level of the social life of the nations of Europe at this time. Right. That's why we also have prominent Jews that we know about in the fields of medicine, philosophy, psychology, uh, physics, yeah. <laughs> Einstein, Freud, yeah. all of these German Jews, Martin Buber, who participated in all levels of German society and intelligentsia. But But also that's,
0: that's that, that also stems from, I think the primacy that Judaism as a culture, once Mm -hmm. again, places on education as a whole, but also being of service. So like you should be educated, but also you should be of service to your community. You know, who are you helping? If you get rich just to be rich, you could get rich being a doctor and save people's lives. Right. So, I mean, there's also that sort of ethos that at least I, I don't know that anyone ever told me that it's just something that I see when I look around me as a person who grew up swimming in the water of Judaism, at least in the United States.
1: So, yeah, these these are all the trends that existed in Europe at this time, right? But in the United States... The trends existed as well, but perhaps in different proportions. And like we said, there are trends. So there still are the traditional communities and the shtetls and the old style Jews at the same time as the assimilating Jews, at the same time as the renewal of Yiddish culture in communist circles of Jews, at the same time as the Zionist Jews, at the same time. All of these things existed at the same time and in flux. And in America, uh, obviously, Reform Judaism and the central tenants we mentioned of it just until now like being able to assimilate and also contain your culture your identity your Mm -hmm. identity as a religious one whereas for many it had been an ethnic identity Mm -hmm. for years was was very appealing to people's ability to assimilate here as well the earliest communities that came were assimilated reform or conservative central european jews Mm -hmm. but then later most of the jewish community that came to america came from eastern europe came from Mm -hmm. the much more traditional side of countries came also after the bolshevik revolution Mm -hmm. in response to pogroms etc around the again turn of the last century Mm -hmm. huge huge waves two million jews came from the pale of settlement which is you know eastern eastern europe and western russia Mm -hmm. in around the turn of the century in a span of like 20 years which is also why they later limited the limited the like set quotas for how many Jews could emigrate to the mm-hmm. states at the worst time ever in Jewish history to not be able to leave Europe but yeah. that's a different story. Yeah. And and all of these older more more traditional Jews still very much had all of the aspects of Judaism as cultural markers. They spoke Yiddish in the right. streets. They most of them didn't speak English. Mm-hmm. The term kike mm-hmm. as an insult for Jews was invented in New York. Mm. It was older German Jews or Central European Jews a term they used to Call insultingly refer to this newer wave of Russian immigrant Jews.
0: Mm, because, oh, so the German Jews were calling the Russian
1: right. Jews. There was this thing in Ellis Island where, you know, if you didn't know how to write your name, they would tell you to just sign an X. But Jews didn't want to sign an X because it's a cross, so they would write a circle instead. Mm. Which circle, I forget the full word in Yiddish, but in Yiddish it's something like Kiken something. <laughs>
0: okay, I'm going to Google it. Go you ahead. You can
1: look it up. And so they started referring to an uneducated Jew who couldn't speak English and couldn't read and write, write their own name as a kike. That was an insult that Jews started calling other Jews and then spread on Damn. in New York. It's not something that you'll find outside of the States even. Ugh. And so for... Kekle. Yeah, it says kikel. There so you go. So the
0: Yiddish word for kikel. Uh, so, so, so that's Germans what a kike means. It's a, it's a Jew Jews. who doesn't know how to
1: write their name in English. Oh, for yeah. fuck's sake. Ugh. <laughs> I know, right? We made the worst insult. So, but I think it spoke to their fear as well. Like we had managed to assimilate; we speak English, we have our communities in such a way that's relatively accepted here in America.
0: And here you are being weird and, and here different. here you are, you're throwing Jewish. us
1: back hundred years. Yeah, and you're still culturally Jewish. You still cook your food out in the street, and yeah. you can, you know, the for many years in Lower West Side, Lower East Side, there was serious Yiddish culture in the street mm-hmm. and people had Jewish their Jewish identity as an ethnic one again
0: that's what I was just gonna ask how much of that then served to which I mean, again, because these communities didn't intermarry outside of one another for Mm -hmm. really until the 20th century, there is, that's why, for example, on ancestry or whatever, you can trace Jewish DNA. So then we have this whole conversation about, is it an ethnicity or is it a religion or blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. Great. But I can't convert to being Mm African-American, right? Like I can't convert to being French it's not a thing I can just do and become and learn and then be that thing. I mean, I guess arguably you could.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's confusing, right? Like if you ask what is being Jewish, what is Jewishness? What is Judaism? Yeah. I I think it's, you'd be very hard pressed to find a definition. Is it a religion? Is it a culture? Is it an ethnicity? Is it a tradition? The answer is yes. All of those things. Yeah. And if you say only one of them, then it's not a complete answer. Well, and this is,
0: you know, this makes sense then to me of the, like, if you're white presenting, If you're from Russia, if you're from Germany, if you're from, you know, these other Western language speaking countries, even France, et cetera, and you come to the United States and they ask your religion and you can write it down and then you can melt into the population visually at least. Mm -hmm. And then if you're coming from Russia and you're wearing weird clothes and you're not saying the right things and you don't speak English and you can't even sign your name... Now, I think it also, in a way, forces these societies who are now seeing themselves through the lens, of course, of nation states, as you say, Mm -hmm. in this time of neoliberalism, where it's like, okay, we have an identity that's tied to a flag and an oath rather than our, you know, our generational ethnicity, for example. Then you do, if you want to limit these populations movement into and in and around the country, you have to identify them as another ethnicity as well. Otherwise, how do you draw that line around them? How do you say no more of you?
1: Yeah, and I I don't think it's an exclusively Jewish experience. I think it's an immigrant experience for many groups in the the States.
0: But I'm saying that that's one of the ways that for Judaism, which is also a religion, which is also a culture, that's one of the ways to also trap it inside those ethnic definitions so that you can then say, oh, no, you're this. You'll never be this. Oh, no, you're Jewish. You'll never be white. You'll never be American. You'll never be French because you're Jewish. And, and you it, can't be both.
1: And it takes time to become American, or as you say correctly, to become white. Mm. Jews certainly weren't white once upon a time, but neither were Irish, neither were the Polish, and they had to That's burn right. off the old world in order to get... Do you know where the term melting pot comes from? There's a play written by a Jewish-American poet and playwright who's second-generation immigrant mm. named Israel Zengvil, also mm. later a Zionist, who wrote a play called The Melting Pot, and the play describes... Basically, it's semi-autobiographical. It describes the first generation who's still very much old world, very much speaks Yiddish, and the next generation who's born into America and speaks the language and wants mm. to get rid of it. And he describes that the process of integration is a painful one. You have to burn off all of the old world in order to come in to actually join the new world. The term mm. melting pot is, is said uh, negatively, even in its first instance in this play.
0: Meaning that it melts away your individuality you have to burn and burn off your identity
1: in order to join the American project, actually.
0: Ooh! ouch.
1: Yeah.
0: It's a, there's so many of these opposite things. This is a total aside, but you know, for example, I have made it a personal mission and a very perhaps pedantic one to correctly use blood is thicker than water. So for Mm. example, I just was saying, you know, we just had Thanksgiving here in the U S and I have said to my, many of my friends, how grateful I am for them, because after all, don't forget that the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. And so the family that we choose, which is the real quote. So we use it in the opposite of its meaning, which is that I somehow owe my family something more than the people that I've chosen because they're my blood. When in fact, it's the opposite, the covenant that I make with you, whoever you are, my friend, my, my chosen family is more important than what I was born into that I did not choose that I had no power in shaping that I had no agency in. So I, you know, that's one of the things. And again, the bootstraps one is as well used in the opposite of what it was intended to mean. Anyway, different conversation.
1: Like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm going into a very historical perspective of this, but that's how I learned things. And I think also, you know, most people in the States tend to assume that the way things are is the way they should be. And, and that they've always been. Right. Which it's is a not result of some process, but that's less important than, you know, how it is now. But obviously, these things are a result of process and can also change quickly. I think, like, if you take all of these things and then you understand, okay, then World War II happens, all of the Jewish community that we. Every Jewish community that we talked about before in Europe. Is eviscerated. A few exceptions are destroyed completely. Yeah. And then in America, suddenly becomes the largest Jewish community in the world.
0: Mm. And which it remains, correct?
1: Which it remains uh, until Israel overtakes it in the late 80s, early oh, 90s. Gosh.
0: And a lot of that, I imagine, has to do with birth rates.
1: Um, and yes. immigration. But yeah. And assimilation rates in a, in the States. The, mm-hmm. the Jewish community in the States hasn't grown for many years.
0: The, the size of it? Yes. Interesting.
1: You know, there are disputes about the numbers, like, of, like <laughs> apropos what we discussed before, of how do you define what Judaism is. Well, i have a fun anecdote about that as well, if you want.
0: Uh, hang on one second. Uh, uh, I'm just doing a really quick, you know, lighthearted search for the percentage of the Jewish population killed in World War II, which you probably know off the top of your head. A
1: third. A third oh, it was only a third? Of oh, the world only. Jews.
0: Sorry, I didn't mean to say it like that.
1: Perhaps more. There were 6 million Jews killed, and I believe, no, no more, uh, close to half. There were around 13 million Jews before World War II. I do know that only in the early 2000s, like not that long ago, mm-hmm. the world Jewish population got back to the level it was in 1933. Jesus. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, all these dynamics happen here in the States. Suddenly, it became very, very important also to be safe. And to be accepted After World and Day to be two, loyal course, in the yeah. Cold War setting, to be loyal to the state, to the American state. Yeah. And uh, then Jews did that and they folded all of this ethnic identity that they had and had brought with them and had kept until the early 20th century into only the, the only place where it was okay to have that, which is the synagogue, which is mm-hmm. their church and that's why we grew up already, the, like our mom is probably the second generation of flourishing in that, moving to the suburbs, mm-hmm. loving having your Jewish identity and your Jewish community, but also yeah. being to, feeling totally American. Yeah. Having Israel exist, but be something that was like, you know, existed far away from you and you could support from afar, but it didn't bring into questions of dual loyalty mm-hmm. because you were Jewish.
0: And you were American.
1: And you were American. and
0: Especially then when, you know, the United States found it to their purposes to be so supportive of the Mm -hmm. state of Israel, there certainly is no duality in loyalties because especially as we see in the American right now, you know, being very pro Israel is being very pro American in so many ways. And that's a completely different conversation. But again, just in this unique world of being an American Mm -hmm. Jew where you can be secular and still be Jewish and still support Israel and still be fully American until something happens where someone needs a villain, but that's a different conversation. Like that's a, and you've told me this before, is that uniquely American? You work with a lot of Western Jewish and English-speaking Jewish populations around the world, now especially including the Southern Hemisphere. Is it a uniquely American thing to be so assimilated, so American, and still be able to say, oh yeah, no, I'm Jewish?
1: I mean, obviously the answer is yes and no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The most Jewish answer there could be to any question ever. (laughs) If if there
1: was, to be fair, like I, I don't... I don't know if every Jewish community in the world, but I do know that most of the Jewish communities I have visited or met people from are more separated and more traditional in a lot of ways in terms of their religious practice, in terms of how they integrate into the societies around them, even Mm -hmm. if they're actually very assimilated in how they present, the way their community is structured and the people they hang out with. Like I told you, Australian Jews, if you were walking down the street, you wouldn't tell them apart from the people around them. Mm -hmm. However, Australian Jewish community is... 10 times more insular than any Jewish community we ever grew up in. Mm. Um, and you if told there were me- to be one society that I would say is very similar to the American experience today, it would be Germany
0: 1927. Ooh. Well, that doesn't bode very well for us. Nope. It didn't go well.
1: Well, you know, things don't have to repeat themselves in the same ways. But I do think that of, of, of that level of integrating and being a successful model minority in a lot of ways and mm-hmm. taking pride in that and having a lot of influence over the society mm-hmm. and as well as, you know, being, being totally integrated and actually very loyal to the state and actually feeling like those two identities can work together, that was a thing that existed in the Weimar Republic in the interwar period and perhaps before World War I as well. Yeah. But that was, it, it reached its peak after. <sighs> does that is that Scary? unsettling yes. <laughs> that dynamic that we described i think it led to our generation growing up the third generation of that and then suddenly going through the same model that had worked very very well for our parents and that their parents before them had started and then starting to ask questions wait why why am i going to this synagogue yeah we talked to our parents like but i don't believe in god and i don't want to believe and they were like well you have to anyway just go we're just yeah. going to go to these not things
0: you don't have to believe in god you just still have to go right and right. we didn't have the
1: same historical context that had led to that construction of jewish identity and i think yeah. that's why we let our left searching for like what, what does it mean what does it mean that i'm jewish i know that i'm yeah. not christian right. and i know that i am raised jewish but what does that actually mean what does it mean to be a part of this thing
0: And it's hard to explain, right? And it's funny because I don't have to explain it to other Jews, Mm -hmm. but when I explain it to my Christian friends, that's probably how I, which are, you know, let's be real is most of the people we know, at least in the U S that's probably the way in which I have best come to understand the way I draw those distinctions internally as well, because of having to explain it again and again and again and again to those who are interested. Many are not many say, Oh, uh, so you're Jewish. Do you, uh, go to, to church and they don't even have the language for it. Mm. Growing up, I always said, yes, but we, we call it a synagogue or a shul.
1: I think for me, that was some of the first times I started going on a journey of trying to understand my Jewish identity is when I went to try and explain it to people, I found that I could not. I was like, actually, I don't I don't fucking know what it means to <laughs> exactly. be Jewish. Yeah. I cannot describe it to you because it's, it's kind of the same. It's not the same as whatever you're doing. Yeah. I don't know.
0: It's the same in the sense that we have a place that we can go, but we don't usually go. Maybe we go twice a year. Actually, it's more important the way that we talk to each other, treat each other, move in the world. And I think that that's really interesting, right? Like one of the stories that you and I just recently talked about, you know, for example, in my case, I've never dated a Jewish guy. Mm-hmm. Never, never in my life. I could have, I guess, but I only had this one small community of kids that I grew up with in Sunday school and Hebrew school. And there was, you know, 20 of us. Some of oh, us went to high school together. Probably
1: a bit nebbish.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they were a little nebbishy. It wasn't my favorite. But yeah. And so, you know, I went to high school with a couple of them, but the vast majority of the people I was surrounded by were non-Jewish anyway. So the odds of me dating a Jewish guy actually numerically were pretty low unless I made a specific choice to do that. Right. But again, you were telling me that's in contrast to the realities of of kids growing up in communities right. like Australia.
1: Yes, it's also first of all much more prevalent for people to go to private Jewish day schools for their entire primary education and secondary education. And that the exists in thing, the
0: states, but it's very different.
1: Right, and it's also not as ubiquitous. There, yeah. almost everyone goes, and it's also not the same private school model. A lot of these operators charter schools or still have state funding and it's like widely accepted that okay yes your community needs to learn in its own schools the same as christian schools used to operate in a lot of places abroad yeah but uh yeah i'll meet australian jews who to me perhaps aren't even that literate about their jewish identity Mm. seem very assimilated Mm. definitely seem very australian (laughs) mullets and mustache the whole nine yards Uh yeah and then when you talk about things like okay have you ever experienced anti-semitism they're like oh no definitely not oh also i don't think I know any non-Jews. Weird. Like you can easily in Melbourne (laughs) even go to the deli and the store and everywhere and not not necessarily interact with people who are not Jewish in any meaningful way. And still be
0: like living in the city. Absolutely. That's crazy. So it is almost a shuttle, but it's just invisible? Yeah,
1: and that's true in Rio, and that's true in Montevideo, and that's true in Manchester. I think London is more similar to the States in a lot of ways, but still... In general terms, most communities around the world where Jews are integrated, they also have separate community institutions. That's so
0: weird. A shadow state, if you will. A cabal, if you like.
1: I would not. <laughs> I would I not like,
0: actually, no, please let's not. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Jew-ish. If you like what you hear, please give us a follow. And don't forget to tell a friend who might be a little Jew-curious. It really is the best way to help people find us. Also, make sure you check out the show notes for a glossary of terms you might have heard in this week's episode. Jew-ish is a Say More production.